let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, you would help us as we hear your word now. Father, I pray that you would use me uh, to speak it faithfully as I ought. Uh, Father, as we hear your word to us this morning, uh, this morning, this evening, Lord, I pray that we would leave uh, with a greater sense of your wonder, your power, your majesty. I pray that we would leave with hearts ready to love you with a love that is enduring. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, about a month ago, uh, I had to go into the city to attend some training on pre-marriage counselling. Uh, in these sessions, we became familiar with a course called uh, Prepare and Rich. Uh, I imagine some of you have actually done that course in the lead up to your wedding day if you're married. Uh, now, I really like this material because it helps the couple uh, to prepare themselves for what love will demand from them in their future marriages. Uh, for example, it shows them uh, that love requires total commitment. It warns them that, about the common threats to love, and it teaches them methods to help them grow in their love for the person that they'll be doing life with from that day forward. And you see, if couples uh, don't make the effort to nourish their marriages, that risk of kind of the slow drift apart just becomes very real. Now, it's one thing to drift apart from your spouse, and that's a horrible reality, which some people know and have experienced. But you see, there's an even worse reality than that that the Bible talks about. And that's the horror of drifting apart from God, letting your love for God grow cold and walking out on him. See, it's kind of scary to think about walking out on the only one who can forgive your sins and give you eternal life. But it kind of happens, doesn't it? We see people do this. I remember a friend of mine from my Christian Union days at La Trobe, uh, who I used to look up to, who I thought was a passionate follower of Jesus, tell me a number of years later at a barbecue that I saw him at, he said to me, Chris, let me put this in, in terms you can understand. I reject Christ. Now that kind of thing I think rarely happens overnight. Like many marriage breakdowns, it's often a slow drift where love has grown dim. So the question that, that I think we have is, is how do we avoid that as a people of God here at Bundy? What can each of us do to nourish our love of God and make it grow rather than fizzle out? Well, in Deuteronomy 6 that we just heard read out, I think we get the help that we need. You see, this chapter uh, in many ways functions a bit like marriage counselling or covenant counselling because in it God is showing us how to cultivate a love for him that will last. And there are really three main things that God is telling us through his words to Israel here as they prepare for life in the promised land. Firstly, love your God wholeheartedly. Total devotion to our only God. 
Secondly, guard our hearts zealously. We mustn't let the enemies of love get a foothold. And thirdly, teach salvation diligently. Future generations must be taught the basis for ongoing love and obedience. Love, guard, teach. So first, if we're going to love, uh, if we're going to have a love for God that lasts, we have to come to terms with the fact that our love for God must be wholehearted. Now this makes sense in marriage, right? And no one reads vows on their wedding day that say, I promise to love and serve you when it's convenient and for the time frame of my choosing. It's crazy uh, to hear that in a marriage veil, and it's crazy to hear it in terms of our relationship with God. He is our God, the only God, and we are to have eyes only for him. And actually, that's the note that Moses starts on in verse 4, you might notice. Hear, O Israel, listen up, because this is important. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, what does it mean that the Lord is one? Uh, I think the best way to understand this is to think one and only. See, Moses is saying that the Lord is Israel's God and must be shown exclusive love and devotion. It's kind of like saying the Lord is number one in your life. Everything else comes in at number two. He is to have no rivals. So what does our relationship with God as number one look like? How does it impact our lives? Well, we're told in verse 5, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Those words, heart, soul, strength, capture really who we are in our entirety. We are to love God with every fiber of our being. But notice that the, the love described here isn't just simply a feeling towards God. We can't say that how I feel about God is more important about how I listen to his word. No, the love that is bound up in our hearts is to be expressed in thankful obedience to God's commands, the commands we heard about last week, the Ten Commandments and everything else that will follow. And do you notice the way that the verse 6 kind of ties those two things together? God's commands with the internal heart attitude. Look at verse 6. These commandments I give you today are to be where? On your hearts. To love God wholeheartedly is to say, because my heart belongs to you, because you've rescued me and made, you, made me your own, I will seek to live your way every day in every way. Because my heart belongs to you, I'll be, I'll be talking about you with my kids as we do the humdrum of life together, verse 7. And we'll think about that a bit later as well. Because my heart belongs to you, I'm going to remember that there is not a nook or cranny of my life where I won't live by your word and seek to love you. And you see, I think that's the point of verses 8 and 9 there where Israel is told to, to bind God's commandments on their hands, their foreheads, their door frames, gates. You see, these words are, are really figurative for all of life heart obedience. I'm not getting this thing working. 
and I'm clicking and nothing's happening. So try now. Okay, good. Right. So it doesn't mean, as many Orthodox Jews believe today, that we must literally tie little boxes to our heads and to our arms that contain little portions of God's law in them. You see, I think that practice misses the big point of verse 6, which says these commands are to be on our hearts. God wants his commands lived out in all of life, not locked up in little boxes stuck to our head. Uh, there's a song uh, that I'll occasionally hear when I'm in my car or, or in a shop. It just seems to pop on everywhere now. It's called All of Me by John Legend. Some of you might know it. Neil may not. <laughs> uh, but throughout this song, the words keep coming through, all of me loves all of you. Now, I think it would make a lot more sense if this guy was talking about God, but he's not. He's talking about, I assume, his girlfriend or partner. Because I think these words are a good summary of what love of God is to look like. All of me is to love all of God. All of me is to love and live by all of his word. To cultivate a love of God that lasts is to say nothing is off limits in my commitment to him. Now, I actually think we struggle a lot with this idea of wholehearted love. I think we much prefer to think we can pick and choose where and how we will love God. I mean, I know that's a struggle for me. Um, uh, I'll give you a random example, a small one, that just keeps popping up for me. Um, I have a Macca's app on my phone. I imagine some of you do too. And on my rewards section, it says I have a free coffee. But you see, the catch is that I think a mistake has happened. I've actually already got the free coffee. There was a bit of confusion at the register and the free coffee token is still on my app. So, believe it or not, this has caused a great deal of stress for me. You see, part of me wants to, to say, well, this is just Macca's mistake, right? And so I'm entitled to get this other free coffee, even though I've already got one, technically. And I mean, come on, it's just $3.80. In the grand scheme of things, with a multi-billion dollar company, does this really matter? I mean, seriously, am I expected to go to the scruples of the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, even in this area? On my Macca's app? But you see, it's actually in these little decisions of life, well, that's where the rubber hits the road of our love for God. You see, if I'm to say that I love God wholeheartedly, then actually no area of my life is off limits to him. He gets my heart, he gets my soul, he gets my strength, he gets everything. And ultimately, I want, to be, uh, I want to love God that way because he deserves my love. 
He's rescued me from my sin. He's given me new life through Jesus. And so in one sense, the, the free coffee is remaining on my app, reminding me that all of life, all of me, must be given in love to all of God. And this includes various apps. But second, if we're going to cultivate a love of God that lasts, then we need to guard against the enemies of love that seek to destroy it. And in verses 10 to 19, Moses warns Israel of three big, three common enemies of the heart that they need to fight against as they seek to love the Lord their God in the promised land. Now, what are these enemies? Well, I've broken them up into three. The forgetful heart, the enemy of the adulterous heart, and the enemy of the faithless heart. Uh, they were enemies that lurked in the heart of God's people Israel in the Old Testament, but they are enemies that lurk in the heart of us today as followers of Jesus. So we're going to take them one at a time. Enemy number one, the forgetful heart. Moses warns Israel about the threat of forgetting God in the good times. The message here really is that prosperity can be perilous. When we have lots of stuff, we can be tempted to forget our complete dependence on God for everything in life. And this is a real threat to Israel as she moves into the promised land. I mean, just look at the paradise that God is taking her into. The description that we get of Israel's future in the promised land kind of reads like a travel brochure to an exclusive holiday destination. I mean, look at what they've got here. God is giving them large, flourishing cities that they didn't build, verse 10. He's giving them houses, and, and they don't have to worry about furnishing those houses, do they? Or spending months digging around to find water? No, the furniture's ready to go. The wells have already been dug, verse 11. And they don't have to worry about waiting around for newly planted vineyards or olive groves to bear fruit. No, they're going to be there already, heavy with grapes and olives, says God. It's a brilliant picture of God's grace, isn't it, to Israel? But it comes with a warning, doesn't it? When you start to live in that paradise... When you relax after a glass of grape juice and a few choice olives, don't forget where it all came from. Don't forget the Lord, verse 12, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You didn't go from nothing to everything by accident or by your own achievements. Don't grow proud and stop trusting me. You see, full tummies can result in forgetful hearts. This is a risk for New Testament believers like us as much as it was for Old Testament believers. Just think about Jesus' rebuke to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3.17. Not that one yet. It's coming. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Uh, there's a moment in one of the early Simpsons episodes that just flashed up. Um, for better or worse, I kind of grew up on The Simpsons. I think it was for worse. Um, but there was an episode in the earlier seasons where 
the, the family and a few extras are gathered around the dinner table and Homer asks Bart to say grace. And this is what he says. Dear God, we pay for all this stuff, so thanks for nothing. And there's like a gasp around the table. But you see, I think there can be a bit of Bart in kind of all of us, particularly in the West. Now, we might not be so blunt as Bart Simpson, but the attitude may be there. And I think you can detect that attitude with how little you might give thanks to God. You can detect the attitude in how little you might be prepared to give to God. The attitude that says, I worked hard for this money. Why does God think he's got a claim on it? Well, my life is quite fine, actually. Good, good health, great family. Oh, look, I know others need God to help them through life's struggles, but, but I'm pretty good, thanks. Now, this is why I think on a practical level that it's actually good to say something like grace every time you have a meal. That might sound a little bit basic, but I was thinking about it. Grace is one of those things, one of those moments in the day where you can just pause and remember to thank God, both for his material provision that you're just about to enjoy, but most importantly for his spiritual provision, remembering that he has shown amazing grace to you who sit at that table, you wretched, poor, blind, naked sinner. Don't forget God. But there's a second enemy that Moses warns Israel against in their love of God. Enemy number two, the idolatrous heart. Moses warns Israel about the threat of the idolatrous heart in a land full of other gods. It is the Lord that they are to fear and the Lord alone. Look at verse 13. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. Israel must guard her heart against idolatry. She's not to go into the promised land and think, look, I know the Lord our God wants us to love and serve him, but I mean, look at this place. Look at the flourishing vineyards, olive groves. I mean, Baal, the god of the Canaanites, seems to have come through with the goods here. Perhaps we should actually serve him as well and keep him on our good side, even if it means kind of bending some of God's laws and indulging a little bit of sexual immorality that comes with Baal worship. See, idolatry happens when we think that the source of blessing comes not from God alone, but from someone or something else. Now, I reckon for most Christians, we kind of know by and large what idols exist in our modern world. If you've been going to church for long enough, uh, you've probably heard them all listed out numerous times, like money, sex, pleasure, career. Uh, we've heard that those things are all idols. But I suspect, perhaps like Israel, our main problem is not knowing what the idols are, but thinking that they're harmless additions to our life. You know, thinking that we can be living for money or sex, and that's kind of fine. But actually, verse 15 reminds us that if we don't stop walking down that path of idolatry, judgment is coming. 
See, look in verse 15. The Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. See, the the message here for Israel is that God doesn't put up with two-timers. Jesus says the same thing when he declares that you cannot serve two masters. The warning that they will be destroyed from the face of the land actually sounds harsh to our modern ears. But we actually have to see this as God's grace. You see, he doesn't want his people to be destroyed. And so he's warning Israel about this. Israel, if you trust me, you'll be blessed. But if you become like Canaanites, I'll treat you like Canaanites. There's a great moment in the line, the witch and the wardrobe, when uh, Susan is being told by Mr. Beaver about Aslan, who is really the Christ-like figure of the story. When she hears that Aslan is a lion, Susan says, well, is he quite safe? I shall, fear rather ne- I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And I think we need to actually remember that, like Aslan the lion, God isn't actually safe. You see, there is, there is no such thing as harmless idols in our relationship with God. To worship anything or anyone else will bring about our God's judgment. But God is good. He will forgive and welcome all who turn to him by trusting in Jesus as both Saviour and Lord. Avoid the idolatrous heart. But there's a third enemy that lies within the hearts uh, that threatens our love and our relationship with God, and that is enemy number three, the faithless heart. You see, look at what Moses says to Israel in verse 16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Uh, Massa was the name of a place where the first generation of Israel, after being rescued by God from Egypt, uh, grumbled against God when there was a lack of water. You see, in their hearts, Israel questioned whether God could really be trusted to take them all the way to the promised land. To test God is to doubt his capacity to keep his promises. In a word, it's faithlessness. Instead of loving God, you kind of become a bit suspicious of him. Instead of obeying his word, you live by and you trust your own instincts. And actually, it's this attitude that got the first generation of Israel into trouble and barred from the promised land when they refused to go in. Remember what they said about God in Deuteronomy chapter 1, 27. The Lord hates us. They were essentially saying, if God really loved us, we wouldn't have brought us into this land of giants who will destroy us. Why should we listen to God? We're staying put. We're not doing what he says. Moses is telling this generation not to test God like their parents did. Trust and follow his word, verse 17. Do what's right in his eyes, verse 18. Don't miss out on the good land God is giving you. Don't be fooled into thinking God won't keep his promises and thrust out those giants before you, 
verse 19. Now I think this third enemy is a tough one because often there are real struggles that wear us down in life as Christians. And some of them just seem so insurmountable, like chronic health problems, loneliness, past trauma, difficult marriages. Sometimes it can be hard to see through the, the difficulty and actually trust God. We may well find ourselves tempted to think, well, if, if God were just willing to do X for me, then I'd trust him. Or if my circumstances were just different, then I might actually be more willing to do what God says. Now, if you're finding yourself or someone you know kind of going through that struggle, well, my prayer for you and for your friend is that you might be reminded again of God's ultimate love for you in Jesus and the way he's proven that love to you. You see, Paul tells the Roman Christians that if, if, they, want to, if they want proof that God loves them, even when they're going through vast struggles, then they simply just need to look at the cross. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates he proves his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Israel did not need to, to test God because he'd already proven himself to them in saving them from Egypt. We do not need to test God or give him ultimatums because he has already proved himself to us in sending his son to die for us at the cross. What greater act of love is there? Well, there they are, the three big enemies of love that Israel and, and now we need to be on guard against, forgetfulness, idolatry, unfaithfulness. Now to the third point, though. Teach salvation diligently. If we're going to have a love for God that lasts, we must teach salvation diligently. Because salvation is the basis of our love. Now, this third point is a little different from the other two because its focus here is directed towards, really, the next generation of God's people, the children among them. God has always been concerned about the next generation, that they know him, that they love him and follow him. We see that at the start of this chapter in verse 2. And in fact, if our, if our church is going to remain healthy and and continue to grow, well, it's only going to be as the next generation continues to take up the gospel and be passionate followers of Jesus. Therefore, God gives parents the great responsibility of teaching their children about God's salvation and what it means to follow them. <clears throat> now, back in verse 7, we saw that, that parents are to take every opportunity they can get to be talking God with their kids you know, on their way to school, around the dinner table, during bedtime routines. Well, now here in verse 20 to 25, Moses shows us the way to answer a child when they ask one of those why questions about our faith. Now, I need to pause here and just mention something. I recognise that uh, for most of us here, uh, you don't have children 
That was made evident by the fact that we don't have a crèche currently running tonight. <clears throat> and you may be thinking that, that this section of the text doesn't necessarily apply that much to you. Uh, but here are two reasons that you should resist checking out at this point. Firstly, I suspect that a number of you will actually go on to have children one day. And so it's good to um, go into parenthood knowing what your God-given responsibility is. But second, and this is very uh, immediate for us, there's a real sense here in which even though you may not be a parent, you do play a key role in the life of our children here at Bundy. You see, whether you're a youth group leader, a kids club leader, a Sunday school leader, or just a simply well-known face uh, that our kids know, you have some level of influence over them. And in fact, in some of those contexts, like youth group or kids club perhaps, the children won't actually have Christian parents. So you too need to be ready to teach children and to know how to give a good answer when you get the why question, a child asking you to explain something about your faith. So let's just look for a moment at that why question in verse 20. Look at it there. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and the laws the Lord our God has commanded you? You see, when a child sees their parent or sees another Christian adult they know living a distinctly Christian life, it will from time to time pique their interest. It will confront their worldview and it will make them ask questions. Why, Dad? Do we say grace every, every day? Why, Mum, did you drive all the way back to Coles to return that extra tin of tuna that you didn't pay for? Why do the, you and the other youth group leaders only seem to date and marry other Christians? That seems weird. Why do you give up your Friday afternoons or your Sunday mornings to be here? Why are you so patient with that kid in your group who was such a pain in the study today. You see, what are you going to do with all of those kind of opportunities? Because there are awesome opportunities. I'll tell you a question that we've got once or twice, um, usually on a cold winter's morning before church, from one of our children. Why do we have to go to church every Sunday? And I suspect most parents get that question somewhere in the piece. Why do we have to go to church every Sunday? I mean, my friends uh, get to stay at home that I talk to at school on Monday. They get to stay at home in their dressing gowns, watching cartoons. Why do we go to church? Now, here I think are some common responses. Well, sweetie, that's just what we do on Sunday. So come on. Well, you wouldn't get to see your friends otherwise, would you? Or maybe it's just the simple classic, stop getting distracted and put those shoes on right now, we're running late. But you see, what is the opportunity in this moment? Look at the text. It's an opportunity to teach about God's salvation, isn't it? 
See, think about it. Moses could have just gone straight to verse 24 after that kid's question. Well, you tell your curious kid that you live this way because the Lord commanded us to obey all the decrees. Now, it's true, isn't it, that we should obey simply because the Almighty God tells us to. But notice that's not where Moses starts, is it? Before he explains to before he asks the parent to explain to his son what God has said, he asks him to teach his son about what God has done. Look at verses 21 to 23. Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders great and terrible on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. Before telling his son that this is what God has said to do, he tells him what God has done. See, if our next generation of little Bundyites are going to love God and live in obedience to him, then they, as well as we, have to first be gripped by God's salvation. And here's the great thing for us as followers of Jesus. We've actually experienced an even greater salvation than Israel here. See, they were saved from slavery in Egypt. We have been saved from slavery to sin, which leads to death. And that's the ultimate rescue that all of us need, isn't it? And we're reminded of that actually in the final answer that the Father gives in verse 25. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. But you see, Israel's history shows us how impossible it was to gain righteousness through perfect law-keeping. Uh, the rest of the story of the Old Testament tells us how Israel continued to fail in their love for God with all their heart, soul, and strength, how they fell victim to all those enemies that we've looked at. They forget God, they betray him, they test him time and again. Israel is actually a picture of the human heart towards God. They show us that what we all really need is salvation from our sinful hearts. And that's actually what God gives us when he sends us his son, Jesus. At the cross, Jesus takes our sin and God credits to us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We stand forgiven and righteous before God because the perfect obedience and sacrificial death of our Saviour. And so any response to the why question from our children about our faith must actually seek to convey the message of 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. So let's say this coming Sunday, next Sunday, a week from now, uh, my daughter Cammy says to me, Dad, why do we have to go to church today? What am I going to do? Well, I can't just say it's what we do. I can't do that, can I? And I can't just get annoyed at her for making us late because actually ultimately it's our fault really as parents. No, I actually have to, to model Moses' approach. Now, what a great question, Cammie. Look, don't worry about your shoes. 
We'll deal with them in just a minute. Uh, Cammy, why do you think we go? See, a question like that actually gives us a bit of insight into where our kids are in their understanding of God. Cammy, the reason we go to church is, is actually more important than going to church itself. Cammy, did you know that we were stuck in our sin? We were separated from God, facing his punishment of hell and death. I mean, it's terrible to think about, isn't it? But God rescued us with great power, mighty power. His son Jesus did the unthinkable for us. He lived the perfect life we should have lived. And then he actually died in our place so that God would forgive our sins. And then guess what happened? Well, God raised him from the dead. And now, Cammy, we too can look forward to being raised like Jesus from death to life. You see, how could we not love and serve and sing his praises? When he tells us to gather with his people, go to church every Sunday, how could we not do it? That's why we go, and that's why it's always worth continuing to love Jesus and doing what he says in every area. How do we cultivate a love that lasts within our church? We've got the message here, haven't we? Love your God wholeheartedly. Guard your heart zealously. Teach salvation diligently. Now, just in closing, if you're anything like me, uh, you'll look at those three points, perhaps on the outline, perhaps in your Bibles, and you'll just think, man, I wish I was doing better in all three. I mean, I might have the Macca's app sorted, but there are other places where I'm failing to love God wholeheartedly. You know, I'm prone to those enemies of love. I can easily forget to thank God for his goodness. And often I feel like, well, I'm so busy that I kind of neglect to stop and really teach my kids. Well, if you're anything like me, I would encourage you to, to cling to God's lasting love as you seek to cultivate your love. You see, love is actually hard work. We make many mistakes and we get distracted from it easily. But God's love will see our love through. It's by seeking his grace and asking for his help that he willingly gives to us that we will cultivate a love that lasts, loving God wholeheartedly guarding our hearts zealously, and teaching salvation to the next generation diligently. Let's pray. My gracious Heavenly Father, we do uh, confess that loving you often is hard work and we fail at it. Uh, but we don't want to fail, Lord. We want to grow in our love. Uh, Lord, we know that uh, all our works for you, all our love for you, uh, happen by your grace, by your spirit. And so we ask for your grace and the help of your spirit to be the people that you want us to be, Lord. Help us to be people who do love you wholeheartedly, who are ready and guarding our hearts against the enemies of our love for you. And help us to be diligent 
as we ourselves remember your salvation and teach it to the next generation too as the basis for our love. In Jesus' name, amen.